This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree, coming to you from the suburbs of Philadelphia. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those who are affiliates. We're going to have a fascinating show. We're talking with Jim Mesturzo of Research Affiliates about his views on the market's asset allocation, where they are positioning portfolios. Uh, but first, we're going to get Professor Siegel's take on the market. Professor, everyone's become a Fed hawk. Uh, I'm curious how you are feeling. You had uh, some very interesting views last week. What's your sense? We've had a good, good week here in the markets. Yeah, another one of those bounces. Of course, everyone, you know, the bears say just a normal bear market bounce. We are up from intraday levels, up 8% right now from the low. Of course, we're up 12% in the first bounce that we had. Then afterwards, we've matched that. Um, it's hard to say, you know, and I'm not going to say, did, did we put in a bottom? Uh, what was interesting was uh, how the market was really encouraged by the final University of Michigan which uh, usually doesn't differ much from the preliminary, but the 10-year inflation um, uh, expectation was was down uh, by uh, two-tenths of a percent and also lower on the one-year. And I think that that, uh, since Powell has mentioned inflationary expectations now, is a heightened indicator. People used to ignore the University of Michigan inflation uh, expectation, not that important. Um, of course, it is also very interesting that weeks ahead of time, uh, the difference between the TIPS bonds and the nominal bonds were indicating that inflationary expectations were coming down and not going up. But uh, the, the Fed needed a justification for 75 basis points. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm going to continue on the path that I said last week. Uh, the, the only good statistic we got was this morning, U.S., uh, new home sales that, that beat expectations of virtually all the other real indicators have been downbeat and under expectations. Um, uh, the uh, global uh, European and U.S. Uh, purchasing managers reports have been very downbeat. Of course, um, uh, we're going to get a week from today, I guess, which is uh, going to be on the 1st of um, July, uh, the uh, June uh, uh, ISM reports, which we will will talk about um, on uh, on the fourth uh, on the fourth weekend. Um, I, I I think that um, we're going to get the money supply data monthly Tuesday. I think it's going to show another uh, either stagnation or even more likely a downturn. I've been looking at the, 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 the weekly figures on uh, deposits, which make up a big part of that, and that is trending down. Um, so they're really, th- this tightening or anticipated tightening has really slowed down credit growth, money growth, um, and I think it's going to be slowing down economic growth. Um, the new home sales, uh, the, the indicators I watched, 0.9% for uh, second quarter. As we know, it's uh, minus 1.5% to 2% uh, first quarter. So we're still going to have a negative first half uh, print over here. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, we had Waller came in for 75 basis points. Uh, Powell sounded very hawkish. What I hope is that the, we know the CPI data is going to come in bad because it is so lagged. Um, but the, uh, the live real-time and forward-looking inflation data, uh, we've had a big decline in commodity indices. In fact, uh, Bloomberg Commodity Indices has declined uh, all the way to where it was just when uh, uh, the day before Russia invaded 
Ukraine. So we've really wiped out all that commodity increase. Some of the others are just slightly higher. Um, now oil is above 100, but uh, 107 right now, certainly uh, nowhere near as high. Gas is down below uh, $5, down to, in fact, the 492. Um, uh, I think there's, I think this, the Fed cannot ignore the slowdown. And if they continue to see money supply growth uh, flatten or go down, uh, my feeling is is they, again, it may surprise everyone that's calling for 75. But by the end of July, we may be looking between 25 and 50, depending on how strong the economy is. Um, now, we're, get, we're getting towards earnings season. Um, you, you know, they're... they're uh, every day without warnings is a good day for the for the. Uh, well, we haven't had too many second quarter warnings. Uh, we normally get a flood of them right starting now. We will get them. There's no question, and, and th- those stocks will be pulled down. But um, we, you know, we we haven't had too many so far on me- meeting second quarter. Now, guidance, of course, is going to be very uncertain going forward. But again, one has to remember: first half GDP negative. Yet earnings are ahead of a year and a half, uh, so it means that firms are are are, are still turning out profits in a bad real uh, economy. Uh, I think the inflation that we're going to have is going to be mostly service inflation, wage inflation. I think commodity inflation is over, and despite the good new home sale, I think that most of uh, housing inflation is over. I think we've seen the peaks there year over year. Of course, we'll still be strongly positive. But I think month over month is going to begin to tail off. I mean, we're, you know, people, on, uh, you know, that have been talking on real line uh, have been talking about the flattening of that curve. So, you know, real estate flattened out, commodities flattening out. The only thing that's going to continue into the inflation is those services that rely on labor, labor costs are going to continue to go up. And, of course, uh, the lagged effect of housing in the CPI indicator. They're going to continue to push CPI up. I'm not pretending that goes down. But I think that uh, Powell and the Fed have to be aware of this to see how tight they want to come. You don't want to go tighter, I think, than what the market expects now. Um, because of what I see as the slowdown in economics. Ratify the market, but do not overtake it. And if you see a slide, you know, say, recognize the statistical aspects of inflation and uh, perhaps even trim some of those uh, future uh, increases uh, in the rates. Yeah, the market seems to think we're going to start cutting rates next year. Um, you've got uh, one of the hedge fund guys, Bill Ackman, put, put sort of this big tweet thread last night saying he thinks, well, he didn't, I don't know if he's calling for it, is saying he wouldn't rule it out that you could get to 5% Fed funds, which was very, very aggressive, uh, thinking that you're, they're going to still have these inflation. It's interesting that, Professor, you were the most hawkish. Now you're toning down. Yeah. Uh, what's your sense Am on. Am I ahead of the curve? That's the question. I was certainly ahead of the curve on the. On for two years, and uh, everyone now acknowledges the Fed was was you know, years late. I mean, embarrassingly late. Now the question is now: Are they going to overreact on the other side? Remember, I think the equilibrium real rates are slightly negative. Um, Fed funds futures uh, December twenty two are at three thirty. What will be ongoing rate of inflation might be not much more. Than 3:30, looking forward from December. Um, so, uh, uh, and if they're four, that's a minus 0.7 percent. That's pretty well. I think again, I think the equilibrium real Fed funds is between minus one and one, and we're gonna we're gonna be tightening up uh, considerably. I think the equilibrium long term tips is zero to negative. We're still in positive territory, 56 basis points as I look. So, um, you know, we're, we've ramped up the real rates prospectively because of the short term, but it's already incorporated in the long-term securities that discount the short term up to the rates which are or above what I think is long-term equilibrium. Um, because I think the, the natural rate, the, the so-called natural rate, which is, the, you know, the, the, the long-term real rate is, is really negative. 
despite the fact the Fed ticked up from 2.4 to 2.5, but it thinks the long-term Fed funds rate is, um, uh, you know, my feeling is, is that it's between 1.5 and 2 with a 2% inflation target, which puts it at minus 0.5 uh, to 1. So we're, we're getting to the tightening with that anticipation. It's going to be rolling through the statistics. There's labor catch-up, but there's not much the Fed, you know, if the Fed just tries to tighten so much to throw us in a recession to cause declines in prices, um, I think that that would be a mistake. Um, let let the price increase. We've had over half of the price increase. Let the rest roll in and moderate down. Best chance at a softer landing without a severe recession. Well, Professor, I, I like you being at the cutting edge of the curve on both sides here. Uh, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep tabs, and uh, thanks for some comments uh, to start the show. Absolutely. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. We are going to turn the conversation to Jim Mesturzo uh, of Research Affiliates. Uh, he's a partner and, and chief investment officer of multi-asset strategies at Research Affiliates. Jim, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for having me. Uh, you heard a little bit of the professor's take on the economy, on the Fed. Those are the key issues I'm sure all CIOs are grappling with. I guess give us your top-down view of the world, how you're looking at the, the world, the markets uh, in, in today's world. Um, sure. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was listening to Professor Siegel there, and um, a lot of what he was saying resonates with the way we see the world. Um, you know, the, this big question of will the Fed over-tighten? And, you know, unfortunately, you know, when we talk about things like inflation, unemployment, they all tend to be more, you know, backward looking indicators. And so, you know, year over year inflation next month is still 11 months of, you know, we know what 11 months of that is going to look like. So we're just talking about adding, you know, one more month. So as we see, uh, as he noted, you know, commodity prices coming down, energy and ags in particular, um, uh, the commodity sectors that have really led this, uh, you know, commodity um, um, bull market, you know, that's not really going to be reflected in the headline number. And to the extent that the Fed continues to react to those numbers, they are going to continue to tighten. And, and you know, I think the left tail scenario is, and the thing they're afraid of is, do they stop too soon? And I actually think that they would prefer to over tighten and be able to, uh, you know, lower rates, um, later, have a little bit of, uh, you know, ammunition to do that versus, you know, blinking because they think the forward numbers, uh, the forward inflation and, uh, numbers and, and other uh, macro indicators have come down. And so, um, you know, I, I'll tell you a few months ago, I was thinking, you know, they were going to raise to kind of two and a half to three. I'm probably more in the three to three and a half percent range now. Five to me, I think, is, is uh, um I don't see where five comes in just thinking about some of the other, um, you know, side effects that that would cause both in the U.S. and, and abroad. And, and we don't talk enough about, you know, what this means for the strengthening dollar versus, uh, you know, other currencies. So three to three and a half, as you think about the opportunities around the world, uh, you know, you had negative real returns in bonds, you're getting to positive real returns finally uh, in some of these longer term bonds that the professor was talking about. But how, how do you think about the, uh, you're sure overseeing asset allocation, how do you think about that? Where wh What do you like? What do you not like from a very top down mm -hmm. level? Sure. You know, it's, it's interesting um, to get this question uh, because you know, for most of the last 10 years, to be honest, no one cared about asset allocation. They, they said they did, but really they just went out and bought the 60-40 portfolio and made about 10% a year for the decade. There were some, you know, uh, uh, peak, uh, um, some moments of, of nervousness. Uh, Q4 of 2018 comes to mind uh, as rates were rising then, obviously uh, with COVID in, in February, March of 2020. But all of those things were... Uh, you know, were relatively short-lived, and then uh, everybody went back to their 60-40 portfolio. So uh, it's nice to be able to think about asset allocation again and, and talk about it and, and consider other assets. And, you know, as we think about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, things that, that, you know, we're looking at, you know, obviously, you know, value has finally started to rebound uh, over the last year or so. Now that's, you know, uh, 
you know, plateaued a little bit. Um, but that's been a nice thing to see because valuations were so stretched for so long. Um, and, and to some extent, they're still stretched in a lot of markets, but we're starting to see things that are, uh, you know, a little more normalized, offering a few opportunities. Um, you know, obviously, with, with the talk about, you know, inflation, you know, tips and commodities come to mind. We have seen, as we just talked about, the pullback in some commodities. I'm not sure that's a, a trend yet. Uh, so, you know, I'm not necessarily ready to, uh, you know, completely uh, underweight commodities. I think there's uh, this might just be a, uh, a little bit of a consolidation before another leg up. We'll see. Um, because of the, you know, and, and we can talk later, but you know, it kind of goes into the supply side of all of this. When we talk about, you know, inflation in particular, and we talk about the Fed, it's really focused on the demand side. And, and that's really what the Fed can try to control. But there's a huge supply side component of this, obviously, the war in Ukraine and, and other things. But, you know, uh, to answer your question, probably more, you know, directly, in times like this, where we have high volatility, high inflation, rising rates, valuations that are not topped out, but are still rich in a lot of markets. Um, you know, it's really a you know, tactical asset allocation makes sense. The, you know, buy and hold strategic asset allocation, you know, if you're, you know, if you're 30 years old and, and you've got 40 years left, fine. But, you know, for investors who are, you know, uh, thinking about their portfolios and, you know, maybe need uh, have liquidity events coming up or, or other such things, the ability to be dynamic, um, things like trend following strategies, um, you know, relative value strategies, those are the things that do well in these sorts of environments. Yeah, the, the sort of to the point on standard 60-40 is all you needed until this year. Uh, and now you've got you got the 60-40 being a lot of pain and, and things like commodities and trend following being like the few things that are up. How do you, th when you think about, and, and your team does a lot, I, I, there's a lot we're going to drill into, uh, but when you think about building expected returns for asset classes, which I know your team does a lot, you have some really interesting tools that tries to help give expected returns across assets and across factors. How do you build expected returns for commodities? What do you think they are today? Uh, and are there, there parts of commodities that you particularly like? Yeah, it's a... Um, <clears throat> It's a great question. And as you said, on our on our website, we publish uh, long term expected returns. So say the expected return for the next decade for 130 different assets, including individual commodities. Um, now, I'll say that for assets like commodities and and well, let me uh, first say that when we think about commodities, we're in this case thinking about derivatives on commodities, not spot commodities, which make a big difference, obviously. Um, and so when we look at it, we look at things like, um, you know, terms, the, the, the um, slope of the term structure is a big deal when you think about derivatives. So the idea of this roll down effect as you have to uh, continuously move from you know, derivative contracts that are maturing or expiring to uh, the next um, closest to maturity, uh, you know, uh, futures contract, uh, if we're talking about commodities. So this constant, um, you know, churn makes a, makes a big deal and eats into your returns if the term structure is, is upward sloping or in contango. Uh, so when we think about long-term expected returns for commodities, we actually have to think about how do we, uh, you know, forecast what the slope of the term structure should be long-term. And for that, we use a lot of, a lot of history. You know, the um, the old adage that, uh, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, uh, you know, comes into play when we think about long term expected returns. We don't want to, in this kind of a, you know, a case, come in and say, you know, look, we're just going to you know make up something or, or uh, you know, this is something we've never seen, but something that we actually think will happen over the, you know, over the long term, you know, over an, a month or a quarter, random things happen. We know that uh, there's a lot of randomness, but over the long term the historical averages that we see should be our, you know, best estimates for, you know, what we think is going to happen in, in the future. And the same thing goes for, you know, then in addition to just the, the roll return, you know, spot commodity prices, what happens to the, you know, the price of oil or the price of corn? Um, how are those going to be if they're, you know, they tend to be higher than uh, they've been over the last decade we're probably going to forecast a, a reversion in that price, whether it be up or down. If they're they're lower than the, the history, 
probably reverting back up, and if they're higher, reverting back down. And and in that curve, you know, isn't that one of the most mm-hmm. interesting things about commodities today, particularly for oil, but probably some others that that oil had been, if you go back the last twenty years, it cost. I mean, I did some estimates from the Bloomberg Commodity Index that I think. My numbers are right. It's like cost you seven percent a year for a very long time, and now it turned positive. Like it's different. It's uh, it's a big different dynamic. Yeah, it's really interesting. So prior to you know two thousand three, two thousand four, many commodities traded in you know backwardation. So you got this positive positive roll return, and then in two thousand four, two thousand three, two thousand four, to uh, just really up to last year, as you just said, it really hurt your returns and. You know, uh, the number of people I talk to who are invested in, you know, ETFs that, quote unquote, are tracking, you know, particular commodities and they don't understand why their return is so much less than, you know, what they see if they just look at the, you know, the spot price on, you know, Yahoo Finance or or whatever. Um, But now we've seen that flip as we've seen the uh, as we've seen oil prices, you know, skyrocket in the last year. And again, there's a supply component of this. you know, in particular, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, investments by oil companies, but obviously the war in, uh, in Ukraine is, is uh, you know, playing havoc on, on that. But it basically just means that, you know, eventually the market is calling for, you know, balance between supply and demand and the ability to uh, build up inventories, in particular in oil that have been, you know, run down over the last uh you know, 12 to, to 18 months, if not longer. Um, and so, yes, to buy commodity futures that are long dated in the future, you actually, uh, you know, earn a positive from this uh, this backwardation. We're, we're talking with Jim Mesturzo, who's CIO of Multi-Asset Strategies at Research Affiliates. Uh, and, and so, Jim, coming back to the, how you build it into a portfolio, when you think taking all that into account and, and a little bit of the inflation dynamics, the 60-40 being challenged, how do you think about sizing commodities? If you were to say a 60-40, do you have a, a favored baseline that you then overweight or underweight? Or, or where do you think the, the typical commodities allocation should be today, given it was so painful for so long? You know, I, I think people have been under-allocated, is my view. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, as we think about portfolios, and I would tell you a lot of the the products that uh, you know I manage and and products that we have at Research Affiliates, we use you know the uh, you know Markowitz mean variance optimization as uh, as a core component in our portfolio construction. So as we build our efficient frontier and go from you know low volatility to to high volatility, obviously a you know an asset like commodities, the Bloomberg Commodity Index volatilities. You know, call it 15 to 17 percent. Um, obviously, that increases as you move out. Now, what's interesting is, you know, historically, you know, we've always talked about well, commodities are are um, a diversifier for to to 60 40, just to make it simple, and and that's true. Um, the flip side of that is that commodities historically have always had a negative, or well, call it zero to slightly negative real expected return, um, and again. We're talking about you know commodity futures, and so the the roll return is as you indicated earlier, and, and the seven percent has been a, a major part of that. So, you know, as we think about you know portfolios and moving into the you know call it a portfolio around ten percent volatility, it's probably you know call it eight to ten percent you know commodities, and that's where we like to stay. Now, again, that's for a you know a, a mainstream diversified portfolio. Obviously, if you're trying to position your portfolio. Um, you know, consistently for uh, bouts of inflation, uh, then, you know, you would ramp that up, um, uh, you know, higher. But as we think about most people just wanting a, you know, a nice diversified portfolio, eight to 10% is is kind of the right, uh, in our view, uh, kind of the right, right mix. I want to come to, uh, I guess, stay on a similar topic, uh, but come to a different piece you wrote in for equities and inflation. So I guess you you wrote this piece last August talking about predicting equity returns with inflation. Obviously, inflation has been the key story of the day. What do you? What did your work on on inflation mean for equities? And and what is it? Do you have a, a view on what equities you like or dislike today from that all that work? Right. So with that work, um, what we noticed and, and what we wrote about in, in the beginning of that paper was the fact that if you go back 100 years, so 
take the U.S. stock market back to uh, the early 1900s, and you just compare uh, the return of the portfolio when inflation was above trend or below trend. So very simple signal of take trailing year-over-year inflation and compare it to uh, a moving average of the previous, you know, five or seven years. It, it doesn't really matter the the moving average window five, seven, ten. It's all about the same. And what you find out is all the positive returns to U.S. stocks over that entire period came when inflation was below trend. So call it a surprise to the downside. That's all your returns. And when you have uh, surprises to the upside, you basically made nothing uh, over that entire hundred year period which was an interesting, um, uh, kind of an interesting finding. And, you know, we see that uh, as a microcosm, if we want to say that, uh, you know, this, this one year, probably not statistically significant, but, uh, but does. It's playing out. The paper uh, is playing out in real time, right? <laughs> That's right. It, it echoed those, those results. We see above trend inflation and we see, uh, you know, negative equity returns. And it's, it, it's not a surprise um, uh, in the sense that, or I should say it, it is a surprise for those that, you know, you read the textbook, the finance textbook basically says that, you know, equities are real assets. So my cost of, of inputs, well, I just pass that on to the, to the end customer and therefore I should be, you know, net net um, able to, uh, you know, sort of uh, as a, as a you know, CEO or as a, an owner in a company um, uh, neutralize myself to inflation, but it's just not the, not the case. There are, lead lag effects here that happen. Um, you know, every time, you know, input prices go up, companies can't be, you know, changing prices and things like that. So there are periods, and obviously most periods, especially during surprises where they're, um, uh, where they're forced to kind of eat that. Uh, it'll be interesting, as, as Professor Siegel you know, noted about earnings, to see what happens this quarter. Now, you know, um, earnings are, you know, I don't want to say earnings are, are manipulated, but earnings are massaged and, and CFOs are very good at, uh, you know, uh, managing their, uh, you know, their balance sheets and their income statements. So uh, we also need to, you know, not read too much into, uh, you know, some of the effects that we see in, in one particular quarter. Um, so then what we said is, well, what if we move on and, and say, well, if we look not just at the full equity market, but what if we look at this from a sector perspective? and say, okay, what if we um, look at sensitivities of each sector? So the sectors are the, you know, energy is a sector, technology is a sector, retail is a sector. Uh, and we did this work with uh, Professor Ken French's data, so um, his sector breakdowns. And we said, well, which sectors are, are more and less sensitive to um, this surprise signal? And that was, you know, the results of that were relatively straightforward. And as you would think, um, you know, energy, utilities, um, very high sensitivities uh, in a positive way. Uh, and then you saw sectors that are, are uh, you know, require, say, energy uh, in particular as an input being very negatively, uh, you know, affected by these surprises. And so you can, you know, take the results in that, uh, that paper as an indication of how to tilt your portfolio, um, you know, in times of, of high inflation all else being equal. So is, is what's happening this year a surprise to you in any of that way? I mean, so you have energy doing very well. Um, you, you know, what's, what's been slammed has been tech, which has nothing to do with energy um, and inflation, but it has a different issue. Um, I, I guess, are, are there any other sectors that are interesting and intriguing based on what's happening this year and, and you, the sort of facet of history that you had? You know, um, Real estate, I think, is an interesting sector because, again, you would think, you know, high inflation, real estate should do well. Um, the real estate sector on average is, is you know, slightly positive. Uh, or it is positive this year. But, again, this is all else being equal. So the thing that, that then plays into it is the fact that we do have rising rates. So things like, you know, REITs, I think, are really interesting um, uh, from a lot of perspectives. And, you know, it's important with REITs to understand that, you know, we used to talk about REITs being offices and, you know, shopping malls and that sort of thing. And that's still a big part of it. But now we have things like, you know, telecommunications poles and, uh, you know, data centers and a lot of the, 
the sort of tech, um, you know, more more techy uh, parts of the economy in there. Um, and REITs are, you know, affected by two things: the the cost of or the value of the the properties, but the ability to roll over those properties and invest in new properties and, and borrow. So the you know interest rates are are a big big part of this. So we're seeing this, um, uh, particularly with real estate, we're seeing this kind of headbutting between you know high inflation good, rising rates bad, kind of neutralizing each other. And then you throw in, in particular with REITs and, and offices, what does the future workplace look like? I tend to think that we're moving towards, or uh, we have been moving towards, um, called hybrid, work from home, work from anywhere, whatever you want to say. I think that's going to, the pendulum will swing back a bit um, at some point here, maybe with the next recession and things like that. I mean, uh, you know, it's seen as a perk by obviously by employees. And I think, you know, I'll say it myself. I like to work from home certain days. It's nice. I, I think you probably do too, but for a lot of, uh, for a lot of jobs, what you start to realize is if you're an employee and you want to work from home or you want to work from a different city or a different state, well, that just means that your competition for your position for other positions is now with not just everyone in the U S but now it's, it's global. Yep. And so we're not just talking about offshoring, you know, call centers and those sorts of things, but individual bespoke workers could really just be anywhere and, and in any country. And so I, I think there's going to be a little bit of a swing back from the, the work from home uh, perspective. I, uh, our, our team has personally, I mean, for me personally, my quality of life has definitely changed dramatically uh, for the better. I, mean, I used to have to commute to New York two hours, no longer have to do that. We're remote first. Um, you know, I do all these calls. A lot of knowledge work, you know, you're reading, you're writing, you're talking, all that can be done anywhere, but it is a mindset and how do you manage things is very, very tricky. And I, we do say the exact same thing. You have a global talent pool now at your fingertips if uh, if you can use it, but it, it's not certainly not uh, all locked in. So it'll be, it'll be interesting, if you, as you say, to evaluate over time. Um, I, I want to... Quickly wrap up this first part of the conversation. Uh, using that inflation timing stuff, have you have you all thought about, or maybe you do, incorporate that into asset allocation frameworks? And you're sort of going more into cash because of the inflation surprise, and and you would dial down your equity allocation because of all that shift to the sectors that you like. Is that something you've sort of productized in a way in in your asset allocation frameworks? Um. Formally, formally, we we haven't included that uh, in our products, but informally, we do utilize it as a, you know, a, a, another signal that we consider when we do, uh, you know, what we call subjective adjustments to our portfolios. Uh, most of our portfolios are driven by, you know, models and, and systematic signals, and that spits out, you know, what we call a model portfolio, and then we we can make adjustments to that. And so we use that signal uh, as a way to um, uh, to tilt the portfolio and, and in ways like you just said. Um, what we didn't write about in the paper and what we do, you know, internally is actually look at that signal, um, not just at the, you know, equity sector level, but cross assets. So how does that signal affect, you know, uh, you know, long duration bonds, core bonds, emerging markets, developed markets, global bonds, commodities, REITs, TIPS. So we, we actually run it in a, in a cross asset framework and the sensitivities of assets to inflation change over time as well so not just are we above or below trend and surprises above and below but the reaction of, of assets actually does shift over time um you know emerging markets and and the way you know currencies respond um is a good example of that where you know you would think that and all else being equal, if there's high inflation in the U.S., well, the dollar should be depreciating and, and other currencies should be appreciating. Well, look at the dollar this year. We have, you know, a wealth of dollars and in inflation in the U.S., and we have a, a very strong dollar against both developed and emerging market currencies. 
Yep. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about expected returns around the world. Uh, the, I, I will talk about how you come to forecasted equity returns, I think. We're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. We're talking with Jim Masters of Research Affiliates. Uh, very interesting conversation on returns around the world, inflation factoring into it. Uh, Jim, as you think about uh, one of the key debates for this year uh, and sort of the inflationary impacts you've seen, a return of value. Um, so, you know, your firm Research Affiliates has done a lot of work on, on, on fundamental indexation going back two decades. Uh, and then we've had a two-decade bull market in growth. What's, what is the story? Is, is this the real deal? What, is, what do you think on expect returns on value versus growth? Is this a start of a new cycle? Is it just temporary? What, what's happening here? Uh, well, thank you for reminding me about the last two decades of growth outperforming value. Um, I face it every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as we look at, look at it, the idea of interest rates rising, uh, whether that be you know real rates or, or nominal rates or both, um, that does just from a you know basic DCF model when you have a growth company where their earnings are projected to be you know out into the future the discount rate is and the discount rate going up obviously your your you know present value is lower now we don't have that as much for uh, you know value companies where you know your value is um, you're not really looking at, at you know future earnings growth um, you're looking at more you know sort of continuation so you know. We think that, you know, we've seen value start to come back. Value versus growth, you know, two years ago from a multiple perspective was at its lowest ever going back, you know, again, 100 years. And so, you know, the pendulum had to swing back um, to some amount. And, and we've seen that. Investors have said, look, you know, um, some of these high-flying growth companies, you know, let's reevaluate some of our um, – you know, estimates around some of these very high earnings per share growth rates. And so as much as, you know, in some cases, what we've seen is, you know, value outperforming because growth has been underperforming by so much. So there's been this kind of shift away from growth, um, you know, and um, will it continue? You know, it's always hard to say. We still think value is, is uh, you know, undervalued relative to growth. Um we expect the market or we hope the market, uh, you know, sees it that way as well. But, you know, time will tell. Is there a, a region, uh, you know, tr it's mostly been a growth has been a U.S. phenomena. You could say also a China phenomena with some of the big China mm -hmm. tech giants. But is and, and I think some of your if I follow some of it right, your EM value has been one of your higher expected returns. Um, but as you th is, do you have a view on U.S. value versus EM value, or any any stories around things that you'd say undercounted by by most people? Um, yeah. So as we think about that globally, you know, over a you know five to ten year period, we do think that EM value is is extremely um, cheap. Uh, and so that's a place again for a, you know, five to 10 year horizon where, uh, you know, we're extremely bullish now it, from a shorter, uh, term perspective, just EM in general, you know, there are some headwinds, um, as we think about EM and again, with a strong dollar, most of these, uh, or many EM countries, you know, issuing debt in, not in their local currency, but in us dollars that becomes more expensive for them. Uh, you know, for those countries that are, you know, commodity, you know, importers, uh, oil prices and commodities being expensive and needing to buy those commodities in dollars, it's a bit of a double whammy. So you have the you know, high commodity prices and a strong dollar. That's a, that's a headwind for, uh, you know, certain emerging market countries. Now we see, you know, countries like India, uh, and China, you know, buying oil from, from Russia at, you know, 30% discounts and, you know, it's easy to criticize that, uh, you know, those moves, but also you understand that, you know, if you have access to something that's cheaper and you're trying to run a country, you know, I, I, I get it, um, you know. Um, so I guess to, to answer your question, yes, for, for someone thinking about the, the five to 10 year horizon, uh, really non-U.S. value, um, 
I mean, we like value in all markets, but non-U.S. value versus U.S. value, um, uh, we're much more bullish. That is interesting. Uh, and is it EM overdeveloped, or is there, or, or, or is developed value as as attractive as EM versus the U.S.? You know, <laughs> I've been bullish on Europe for uh, a few years now, and that just has not played out. Um, from a you know valuation perspective, from a you know just a dividend uh, you know, dividend yield perspective, um, I've really looked at even with the you know structural you know some structural headwinds that exist within the you know the European Union uh, and challenges that the ECB is trying to face. We've been looking at Europe uh, you know favorably, and, and again that just hasn't really really played out the way we thought it would. Um, now, as we think about you know geopolitical aspects and how they impact, uh, you know, Europe in particular, you know, sectors like defense um, on the, you know, on the value side, but also, you know, sectors like, um, you know, energy transformation, we know is going to be a big topic. Um, I tend to be uh, more bullish nuclear. I think uh, things like uranium um, uh, are areas that are interesting and should be paid attention to. Um, when we think about, you know, green energy and moving away from, from, you know, fossil fuels and, and, and carbon, and this isn't to say that nuclear is, is completely clean. It has its own issues, but, you know, as a way to produce the amount of energy that you need without, you know, burning, you know, oil and coal, uh, nuclear has a lot, lot going for it relative to a lot of the other things. So those are, are a few sectors that, um, you know, I have my eye on at least. Very interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you come to these when we, when you're talking about a view of Europe or EM value versus U.S. value. Is a lot of the work, and, and I know, um, you know Professor Siegel and, and Bob, you know, the founder of Research Affiliates, have had a lot of conversations over time on expected returns and the CAPE model as a driver of these. So we, so we don't have to go into all the debates of the CAPE model, but is that your favorite model for asset allocation, expected returns? Is there anything when you're making those views any other things you would say about how you're trying to come up with the expect returns and asset allocation across these regions? Yeah, so as you said, you know, we use uh, we use CAPE. We tend to use the, um, I don't know if I want to call it the, the original CAPE or the raw CAPE. Uh, I know Professor Siegel has, uh, has papers on, you know, adjustments to CAPE. We tend to use the, um, you know, just, uh, you know, what Professor uh, Schiller publishes as his original CAPE. But we do, you know, a few adjustments around it, and and the the adjustments are essentially based on the idea that, um, you know, we think about valuations. You know, obviously we know the current value, but what's the what's the fair value? And so, you know, for a long time there were arguments about should you just take the full period average of the you know the cape, and that's somewhere around sixteen or seventeen. Are we really going to trade back to seventeen? Are we going to trade it? Uh, which is influenced by levels of, you know, CAPE ratios of eight from the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, even during the financial crisis, the, you know, the CAPE dropped to, I, I want to say the bottom was, was 14 or 15. Uh, so, you know, as bad as the financial crisis was, we were only a little bit below the, um, that sort of long-term straight average. We tend to look at more moving averages and exponentially weighted moving averages of, um, um, and then, Input or uh, incorporate the fact that, you know, at least in our work, as we think about, you know, reversions of CAPE ratios, it's really a, you know, call it a two decade type phenomenon. So the, you know, you can be overvalued or undervalued, but you should expect that that reversion, uh, especially when you're overvalued is, is, you know, can take some time. So, you know, you shouldn't expect a, uh, from a valuation perspective, you know, a 10 or 15% drop just purely based on the fact that the, you know, the CAPE is high. Right. So, as you were to, if you were to give a view of the U.S. market, real returns from where we are today. Um, this is like the key question. Like, where are we today? Uh, how, what do we think about the U.S. For overall markets without the value growth dichotomy? Yeah. So, if we just look at the the cap weighted uh, U.S. market, we have a uh, an expected return for ten years net of inflation of one point three percent. Our uh, you know ten-year forecast for inflation is is about four. Um, 
hmm. which might be a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit high, but you know, on average from, from where we're starting, um, uh, is, is in the ballpark. So if you throw that on, you, you know, you're somewhere around five, five and a half. Um, but when we, you know, when we think about expected returns, we tend to always talk about it as, you know, net of inflation, because obviously that's what you're, what you're actually keeping. Um, and so that comes from, you know, dividend yields, which are, you know, still incredibly low, 1.5%. Um, earnings per share growth on average, if we just look back uh, as a moving average trend, is about another 2.5%. That gets you to four. And then this idea of, of valuation reversion um, from the CAPE to, uh, you know, from the current CAPE to, uh, you know, our fair value is a, is a tailwind of about 2.5%. Now, I should say that's as of um, end of last month. Obviously, uh, you know, some market activity this month will uh, will bring that number down just a little bit. But, you know, call it, you know, one and a half percent net of inflation for 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, so it's, say, let me sorry. Um, <laughs> I will say we always get pushback. That, oh, your number is too low, which is, is always the thing. And one thing I like to point out um, is as we think about this, you know, our purpose and, and really when I think about this from an asset allocation perspective, is not necessarily to get these numbers exactly perfect. Um, it's how do we have inputs to build a portfolio? And what that really means is if our expected return for you know, the S&P is low and our expected return for every asset class is low, we're going to still build a, the same portfolio. So you know, whether they're all low or all high, what we want is, is consistency across all of our assets. Right. No, it's, it's it's very interesting. So, it's, and it's a way to build it up. You see, you're doing the dividend yield. You got earnings growth, and it's just the the question is, what does the valuation adjustment have to do? And you, and you're basically saying all the value, all the earnings growth is gonna, the multiples are gonna compress to to sort of wipe out all the uh, the earnings growth, which is which is interesting. And that and, and so it, it is and the highest expected return was em value from that model and the the yields there are probably like four or five and maybe you, you don't maybe you're getting earnings growth or not even you don't need any earnings growth you're just gonna have multiples that support it at the at the, at that kind of level right yeah that's right that, that's exactly right just uh just returning to the u.s um like our fair value cape is about is 24 and a half and uh as of the end of last month the number was about 32 or probably, I think, closer to about 30 now, so it's come down a little bit. But, you know, trading at about, you know, 25, our multiples in, in other countries, um, I'm just looking at our overall emerging market, you know, fair value is, you know, 15 and a half. Again, it, the idea that, um, you know, all countries shouldn't be trading at, at the same multiple. There's, there's reasons we trade it at different ones. So our multiple in emerging markets is much, much lower, and our Overall, or let's see, the current CAPE is about right about our fair value. So it's uh, you know it's 15.3 versus 15.5. So let's just call that call that um, at parity. Kind of the same thing with developed markets. As you move to as you said, value and growth. Those disparities, though, um, uh, there are disparities there when we think about value and growth in, in these other regions. What about bonds? Um, you know, we, we talked about a little bit with the professor, his view on equilibrium real rates. Uh, if you said there's a market where it's probably the most interesting today, I've been talking Japan, where, you know, Japan value is like a 10 PE below and you've got <laughs> zero bond yield. So you've got a 10% spread on current current numbers. Um, the CAPES obviously would probably be higher, so maybe not as, as low as my current numbers. But what, 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 where, where do you see bond yields today as, at fair value? Um, you know, as we're looking at, at bonds and obviously, you know, uh, you know, developed markets, uh, both the U S and just globally, we're seeing rates rise. And so, um, you know, it's been tough for, uh, for bond investors from that perspective, if we think about, um, well, then it, I, I think maybe the, the right answer to this, uh, the answer to your question is then we have to start talking about, back to what is the Fed going to do and how far will they go and how deep, if they do cause a recession, how deep will that recession be? At some point, uh, we're going to see a risk-off move potentially that, uh, that you know, makes bonds rally. I mean, it's, it's really interesting, you know, looking this morning, you know, even in the last, you know, week, 
or, or, you know, a week to 10 days ago, the 10 year was at, you know, three and a half. And now we're down, you know, to, you know, three, 10, three Oh five, somewhere in there. So we've seen this nice rally in bonds. Um, What's actually more interesting to us from a you know bond perspective, as much as we talk about EM um, equities, is EM local bonds, where we have yields at about 8%, um, and we have a really strong dollar. So at some point, we think that that uh, strength in the dollar, um, and I think we're, we're closer to that than farther away from that, that strength in the dollar is going to begin to to reverse. And so we're going to start to see foreign currencies appreciate. So you get this, this double kicker of a high, you know, high yield and a high and a positive currency return, uh, you know, makes that asset class really appealing relative to, uh, you know, developed markets or and, and U.S. bonds and even to, you know, um, hard currency EM debt where, you know, we still have this, uh, you know, some funding issues and other sorts of things. So EM local bonds is something that's always a little bit unloved, um, uh, but something that, that we're, you know, definitely keeping an eye on. We, we feel that pain there, too. What, what, what's the catalyst that turns the sentiment to EM bonds or, or the dollar? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question of what it what will actually be the catalyst, and I and I think that's the you know bit of the the sixty four thousand dollar question, um, or, or as Rob likes to tell me, it's no longer the sixty four thousand dollars, the sixty four trillion dollar question. We've um, had inflation since the fifties. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's it's a you know I don't necessarily have an answer for what that catalyst will be. I can tell you that whatever. I would say it'll be something different uh, yeah. because now we get back into, you know, the idea of geopolitics and, and things happening there. Um, it could simply be, you know, we, we do enter a recession. And as um, I believe you were saying earlier, markets are predicting, you know, rate, rate falling in the U.S. next year. It could be as simple as, as that. Um, uh, but it also could be, you know, a, a, an ending to or some settlement uh, with the war in Ukraine. I don't think there's actually going to be an ending to that war anytime soon, but it, it could be some sort of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, negotiations or, or, or things of that nature. Um, you know, the oil markets settling, as I mentioned, you know, you have all this Russian oil that used to go to, to Europe and is now going to, uh, to India and China. So you have a, you know, a, a call it a, a reshifting of that market, but essentially the supply and the demand will find each other. Um, and so that may actually be a catalyst for uh, a little more comfort with EM and, a, and an appreciation of EM currency. So there's a lot of different things yep. that could be the catalyst. Um, we think that, that something will happen though. Well, Jim, uh, we just ran out of time, but uh, this was a great conversation. Uh, we've been talking with Jim Masturzo, who's the, the Global Chief Investment Officer at Research Affiliates of Multi-Asset Strategies. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. It's been a fantastic conversation. You can listen to us, our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.